one thing would lead to another. So you'd have a tunnel vision and then you'd be like, I'm not feeling so good. I feel a little dizzy. And then you'd feel a little twinge in your chest and you're like, oh, I'm not really breathing. I'm like holding my breath. I'm not breathing. Wait, what was that pain? Oh, I mm-hmm. think that could that possibly be a, a heart attack? Am I dying right now? What, what's happening? I think yeah. I'm dying right now. And then the spiral of thought starts going the downward spiral. And yeah. until like you slow it down, like I didn't even know that was happening. It's just uh-huh. it's just happening. You're not thinking these thoughts. You're it's just kind of happening behind the scenes, almost like in your subconscious, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. And I always related that hypersensitivity to like on the flip side, the very positive side of that hypersensitivity would be like a flow state. Yes. Like you're so in that zone. In the zone. Yeah. You know, you're playing. Focused on whatever you're doing. Musicians, writers, experience it. Yeah. yeah. Basketball players mm-hmm. or like, I always think of Michael Jordan. Sports, you know. yeah. Recording from my studio here in Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm a born and raised New Yorker now living in the South. Welcome to Confessions. I'm a financial advisor the antidote to conventional financial independence wisdom. My name is Al. I've been a financial advisor for over 20 years. I've worked with thousands of clients in all areas of the country and from all walks of life. Through the relationships I had with these people, I've discovered the mindsets and behaviors that are most effective in a person's financial life, plus the pitfalls and all the BS to watch out for. The financial independence community today has completely lost its way. And I felt it was time to call out the FI gurus, podcasters, and self-proclaimed pundits. This podcast is not about the numbers. That's what all the other financial podcasts talk about. We will focus on the emotional and psychological components that drive our behavior. I am not looking for new clients. And I'm not interested in running for any kind of office. I'm going to tell you like it is from an insider's perspective and pull back the curtain on the financial industry. Now, let's get into Confessions of a Financial Advisor. Welcome to Confessions of a Financial Advisor, Episode 7, Panic Attack. I'm here with my partner in crime, Diane. Hi, Diane. Hi, Al. Great to be here. And we're going to talk about panic attacks today. And I know many of you out there probably have experienced one or know someone that has experienced one. And I thought it was a good idea to really explain um, how it works, what it feels like, just the the pure, sheer terror of a panic attack that is hard to would be hard to understand if you haven't had one. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it kind of started was I was doing a business presentation in New York City. I was a quote unquote small business owner where I was selling health insurance with a partner. We were walking around the streets of downtown Manhattan, going from office building to office building and just knocking on doors of small businesses and asking them if they needed, you know, a quote for their health insurance, if they wanted to compare, you know, what they have. Yeah. 100% commission, total sales dependent. 100% 100% commission, yep. walking around at whatever it was, 24, 25 years old, suit, um, maybe it was 27 at this point, full suit and tie in the middle of the summer, sweating through my suits in the summer, freezing mm-hmm. my butt off in the winter, mm-hmm. dress shoes, just wearing out dress shoes every few months. Yeah. Um, 
because you're just walking on pavement nonstop up and down stairs. Mm -hmm. And just knocking on those doors prospecting was terrifying. So we go into these buildings that were sometimes, you know, 50, 60 floors. Mm -hmm. And so you'd go to one floor, there'd be, you know, 15, 20 businesses on each floor. We just go floor to floor to floor, knock on the door. You never knew what you were walking into. Sometimes mm. it was somebody slamming the door in your face, like no solicitors or yeah. what are you doing? You should get out of this building. Or you know, some people would be like, all right, come in, you know, let me see if I, you know, the guy's the CFO is here and can mm-hmm. talk to you. Most of the time it was just dealing with like the secretary or the, mm-hmm. the front desk the person, gatekeeper. the gatekeeper. And asking them for the business card of the decision maker. The contact person. And that was like the safe bet when you're walking into these buildings. I'm like, all right, let me just get a business card. I'm like, I almost don't even want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want the confrontation. Just give me right. the business card. Because it was safer to get a business card and then go back to our office the next day and place well, I the imagine phone call. It's easier if you're going to get rejected to have it not happen in person. <laughs> <laughs> Over the phone was a lot easier. Yeah, it's like, you know, asking a girl on a date face-to-face or on Match.com. Which one feels better? Exactly. So, yeah. So, doing that for a couple of years, you know, we got some clients. It just never amounted to enough to really sustain us financially. Mm -hmm. So, we were struggling. I mean, literally struggling. Like, our big treat at the end of the week was, like, going to the local Irish pub Mm-hmm. And like having like a pint of beer, you know, for five bucks, like that was just living off nothing and commuting back and forth. So from Long Island to Manhattan, over an hour there, mm-hmm. over an hour back. So it would be bus, Long Island Railroad, and then subway. Mm-hmm. And they had to do that on both ends. So fast forward to a business meeting I have. So I finally I land one of these appointments, you know. So maybe- you're living this super stressful lifestyle in your career. All buttoned up, suit and tie, just hating yep. life. Yeah, just not enjoying life at all. I mean, New York, so you think New York City, maybe you th- have pictures of sex in the city or you have pictures of any <laughs> any movie you want to think of where people are just like out on the town and limousines. Living and the high life. Glitz and nice uh-huh. restaurants. That was not me. Like I'd go in there, <laughs> spend the whole day hoofing it and then come home. And, like I'd want to get out of there. Once the day was over, it was like, right. let's just go home, you know, do this over again. So, you know, you, you get a handful of appointments each week. And so on one of these appointments, I'm sitting in the conference room of the business. So we go into the office building, we're in their conference room and I'm giving the presentation. I'm sitting down across from three or four people from their company. And right next to me is my business partner. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking, I'm just talking through it. I'm familiar with what I'm talking about. So I'm not stressed by the situation. It's not a new presentation. It's when you've given a number of times before. So it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Yeah, I'm prepared. I don't have this fear because I'm not prepared or anything like that. And so I'm talking. All I remember is vision starts tunneling. Just things start becoming a little bit blurry. Mm -hmm. And my palms start sweating. I remember that. Like I'm touching my palms. They're sweating. And then my heart starts racing and I'm like, what's inside? I'm like, what the hell is going on? But I'm talking this whole time. I'm going Mm -hmm. through the presentation. Heart starts beating faster. And then in a split second, a full wave of adrenaline hits me. And I literally jump up from my chair. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I thought I was like the biggest psychopath. And I thought everyone was going to be like sitting back in their chair with big eyeballs. (laughs) Like, what the hell is this guy doing? 
What's wrong no, with them? Nobody reacted. I got up. I just literally started walking around. They're all sitting down. I'm literally walking around the table. Doing the laps around room, the conference table. Talking and doing laps. <laughs> and it's just, you're literally in the state of fight or flight. And we were talking earlier. I compared it to when you're falling back on your chair. Mm-hmm. And right at that point where you think you're going to fall back, but you catch yourself, that yes. fear. That on the edge because I think we've all done that. Yeah, so, like, whoa, yeah. like, you yeah. know, that rush or like yeah. right when you're driving a car and you're not paying attention and then you look forward and you're about to hit that car and you slam on the brakes that narrowly miss an accident. Yep. So it's that same feeling in that jolt of adrenaline, but just stretching it out so that you're just in that, that falling back on your chair moment for five minutes, sometimes like 10 paralyzed. Minutes. Yeah. Paralyzed. You know, we, it's weird because you're still functioning, mm-hmm. but your mind is just you're it's completely ad- internal. It's completely, yeah, it is. It really is completely internal. It's an internal experience. On the outside, my business partner after, when I explained to him what happened, mm-hmm. he's like, I didn't even really realize. I'm like, you didn't notice I got up and I was pacing around the conference room? He's like, nah, you look normal to me. I'm like, how is that possible? <laughs> wow. I felt like a crazy person. Uh-huh. And I guess that's just part of my demeanor to try to keep calm, cool, collected, right? No matter mm-hmm. what. So from that point on, that was a bet. Like, so the actual panic attack itself is a really stressful, crazy experience. You feel like you just ran a marathon. Mm. You, you're exhausted. I, I can't even explain the exhaustion, but like, it's just, it's so taxing to your nervous system mm-hmm. that you're just literally like, want to go take a nap and just lie down. Well, because it's physical when your adrenaline internally, physiologically surges. And so- when that's over and the threat has passed, your adrenaline levels come back to normal and there's, it's exhausting. There's a, there's a physically exhausting component to experiencing that survival mode. Yeah. The stress just kind of just saps all of your energy. It's just ta- mm-hmm. so taxing on your nervous system. Mm-hmm. And so what, what happens after that? So that's bad enough to have like, it's one thing to have one of these things 10 minutes long. It's taxing. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. If it was just over there, that would be great. You know, like, like once and done. Yeah, like oh, that <laughs> happens. But what happens is you start to think about it's called anticipatory anxiety. You start to yeah. think, what if that happens again? Mm-hmm. There was no real trigger to let me know that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you start thinking that what if I go to another one of these business appointments and that happens? Or what if I'm in a movie theater or in church or wherever? I don't know if you're in a supermarket or driving mm-hmm. a car, God forbid. Yeah. In the middle of driving this vehicle, like this death machine, and mm-hmm. you get a full-blown panic attack, like what do you do then? Yeah, the sheer unpredictability of it, like the inability to... Right. If somebody told you in 10 minutes you're going to have a panic attack, it, that would be a lot better than just walking around. You put yourself in a safe space for a little bit <laughs> and let it pass. <laughs> However... However, it doesn't really work that way. Life doesn't usually work that way. Life doesn't work that way either. Traumatic experience don't doesn't work that way the absurdity of life experience yeah yeah so that was kind of the the worst part of it was that over and over like you start thinking about it and thinking about it and then i started reading up because what i do anytime something happens when it came with the back pain that we talked about in a Uh previous episode panic attacks panic attacks happen before the back pain um i would just start researching i want to know everything Mm -hmm. about it i want to understand everything i want to know everybody that's gone through it (laughs) every technique they've used to get out of it yeah and I went to a therapy session um, and I remember my therapist saying to me, I kept asking him, I'm like, 
I, I really need to understand what's going on. I can't understand what's happening to me. Like this is just happening and I don't understand why. And if what's I just, the explanation for it? Give me a logical reason. Point me into black and white that I, that's tangible that, that will explain. Yeah. If I just knew, then I could do something about this. If I understood that would solve the problem, mm-hmm. I correlated those two. If I understood the problem solved. Yeah. And he's like, all right, let me just, all right, here's your explanation. It's because, you know, you're Italian and you're from New York and you're six feet tall. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the reason you had this panic. There you go. There's your clear cut explanation. Now what? Now what are you going to do? I remember thinking, I'm like, oh. Oh, crap. He could have said that. He could have said anything, right? Yeah. I mean, if it, as long as I believe that's the explanation, what am I going to do with that information? Mm. Is it useful in any way? I'm like, I'm spending all my time trying to find the answer to this thing. The root cause. And maybe it just happened. What? My brain wouldn't allow me to think that, you know what? What if it just happened? It was happened yeah. in that moment. Now let's figure out a way for to prevent it or to deal with it if it does happen again. Right. To, you know, alleviate some of the suffering that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. So it just shifted my whole perspective. I went from, I have to understand why. To like, you know, what am I going to, all right, what are some of the coping mechanisms? What are some of the strategies I can use to mitigate, mm-hmm. you know, some of the suffering? So I thought that was a really cool part of the experience. And if you ever asked me, you know, what are some of the benefits you got out of like a traumatic experience? That shift of perspective was one of them to yeah. know that I don't need to understand everything in order to have a solution to a problem. And sometimes things are just not explainable. Like there are things in life that just don't, they defy explanation and yeah, it's, it's okay to not know why. Yeah. I remember I had the same feeling when I got divorced too. I remember thinking to myself like, Mm. why, why did I get the, why, why did this happen? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And then I came to the conclusion. I'm like, you're never going to know why this happened. It just happens. There's a million different variables that you can't piece together to make this perfect this is the exact reason why it happened because we piece these million different situations and moments and yeah. So I kind of got away from that idea of understanding or thinking that I can possibly 100% understand. Mm -hmm. Say, here's where I am. How do I go forward? How do I move forward? It's hard to do that because you want to, my brain works. I want to know, I want to know why, why Mm -hmm. did that happen? Mm -hmm. Why, how is that possible? I guess to me, there's, a form of resistance in some way to insist on asking those types of questions. Like whether you want it to happen or didn't want it to happen, if it happened, you can't argue with that. Like it happened. And you want some kind of control. Like it's a control thing. Cause like, yeah, if yeah, I know what yeah. happened, then I can control that situation. Then I can prevent it from ever happening again. To yeah, me so or anyone else. It's ra- rather than again letting go of like there's no there's nothing I can do about it. It already happens. Mm-hmm. I can't. Where do I go from here? Yeah, what's the right? What's the path now? It, it's definitely a controlling thing. Mm-hmm. But I think that what's funny is that's the part of what causes a panic attack is that I think it was years and years of like rejection in that situation. It wasn't one moment, but it was a buildup, like cumulative like, effects. Cumulative, yes. yes. You know, yes. rejection and like, <laughs> sounds so depressing, self-loathing and sort of like just. Well, we talked about this before we started recording that panic attacks really are a form of self-assault. They are a form of assault, but you're the one beating yourself up. You are. And you're not, 
consciously doing it. It's not like you're telling yourself like, all right, it's time to kick your own ass. Like, (laughs) yeah, it just comes up and like, there's nothing happening around you. Like nobody's hitting you. Nobody's yelling at you. Nobody's, um, you know, you're not getting needles jabbed in your arm. You're not, you're not in a stressful situation. You're not in a war zone. Mm, Yeah. But you feel like your internal, your nervous system feels like the internal experience of it. Yeah. You're just in that, yeah. You're and in that trapped t- within your own mind, which I have told you, of all the places I could ever be trapped, my mind is probably the last on my list. Like, that just sounds horrifying to me. Yeah, it's the most narrowed of perspectives because, like, mm-hmm. you're just inside. There's nothing outside of you. Like, the mm-hmm. whole world around you goes away. And you're mm-hmm. just in your world. You're in your tunnel. You're in your little tunnel vision worlds. The narrowness of perspective, the hypersensitivity to every physical sensation this is all part of like what pan- how panic attacks work, at least for me. And I know mm-hmm. from a lot of other people hearing their experiences, this hypersensitivity where, for instance, one thing would lead to another. So you'd have a tunnel vision and then you'd be like, I'm not feeling so good. I feel a little dizzy. And then you'd feel a little twinge in your chest and you're like, oh, I'm not really breathing. I'm like holding my breath. I'm not breathing. Wait, what was that pain? Oh, I mm-hmm. think that could that possibly be a, a heart attack? Am I dying right now? What what's happening? I think yeah. I'm dying right now. And then the spiral of thought starts going the downward spiral. And yeah. until like you slow it down, like I didn't even know that was happening. It's just uh-huh. it's just happening. You're not thinking these thoughts. You're it's just kind of happening behind the scenes, almost like in your subconscious, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. And I always related that hypersensitivity to like on the flip side, the very positive side of that hypersensitivity would be like a flow state. Yes. Like you're so in that zone. In the zone. Yeah. You know, you're playing. Focused on whatever you're doing. Musicians, writers, experience it. Yeah. Yeah. Basketball players Mm -hmm. or like, I always think of Michael Jordan, you know, or like chess players are in the zone. It's like, they're not even like looking at the pieces. They're feeling it, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. or like you said, musician is a great example. Like you're just literally feeling like where you are. You're not thinking about playing a scale or playing a certain note. You're just... You're in that music. You're inside Fully the music. Fully present in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. But, but man, so the, the flip side. <laughs> the dark side. Wow. The dark side of the flow state. Like as good yeah. as flow will feel, panic attacks feel just as awful. As the yeah. Opposite. There's that Czechoslovakian guy that in, supposedly invented the term flow. Uh, mm. Czechsent Mihai. That's his last name. I just know okay. that part. Anyway, so he has a book called Flow. Okay. And that's kind of where I think the state of flow came from. Mm-hmm. But I've never heard it talked about on the negative side, like you said, the dark side of flow. <laughs> dark side of flow Light is just, and dark, yeah. It, yeah. You can't untie the two in life. But in some weird way, it's like a flow state is like, it's not all engrossed in your head. It's almost like it's partly in your head, but it's partly ever expanding. Like you're just part of... I mean, it sounds silly and kind of, you know, woo woo, but it's like, you're part of everything. Like you're just Mm -hmm. like, you're literally in that moment. Like when you're playing music or you see somebody like really into the music and they're just like, eyes are closed and they're in that music. Like they're part of the music. Yeah. It doesn't sound crazy at all. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, it's, it sounds a little new agey to me. (laughs) Out there. So then you start to think like understanding is just irrelevance, like mm-hmm. understanding the stuff, like just because, you know, if you can map all the neurons that create, well, you could get it moment. down to a single gene, even if you could, what are you going to do to change it? Yeah. It's happening. So, well, you, you also pointed out that you reflected back on some childhood experiences 
Right. So yeah, after 20 years now, 20 years removed from that first panic attack, you start to try to connect the dots a little bit Look back and yeah. Yeah. Just see what the patterns were like, did mm-hmm. I, what, maybe not what directly led to this, but are there certain things I can remember from childhood that sort of made sense to kind of jumping off points that kind of led me to that panic attack? And I think at one time being 14, uh, was in with, with four or five friends. We had a park, 14 or 15. And we're just hanging out. Me and my friends are hanging out. And out of nowhere, a group of, you know, maybe 17, 18 year olds just literally jumped us. And I was the first person to be hit. So somebody literally just lunged out. I didn't even see them coming. Mm-hmm. And I got punched in the face, big bloody lip, that whole thing. And I literally like ran off just like we all tried to scatter. And I watched yeah. a couple of my friends really get like a beating. And they literally cracked my friend's windshield who was driving. And he had like his learner's permit, you know, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a whole big deal. And like police came and we had to file yeah. police reports and our parents got involved and it was a whole thing. And part of the experience I didn't mention to you, which I think even further explains why, like I kind of kept all of that kind of on the inside was when I got home, I explained to my parents, I said, you know, this happened and a guy came out and punched me and I was terrified, had mm-hmm. to fight or flight. I, you know, I flew. I ran. Yeah. And my parents immediately said, like, you can't do that. Like, you can't leave your friends behind. Wait. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they were like, you know, yeah, you can't leave your, you gotta, you always gotta like be there and, you know, stick it out with your friends. And I remember thinking at 14, 15, like so humiliated and emasculated Mm -hmm. from that, like just feeling like such a weak person. Yeah. And that like, I just, wow, I can't even defend myself. I can't defend my friends. I'm I'm overcome with fear and I just run from, you know, adversity. And like, this is who I like, then starting to believe that you're just this weak person. Like intense feelings of shame. And it kind of set me off on a weird path of entering like karate school. Like now I have to learn how to protect myself and like getting into fights at school and then like joining a wrestling team and just doing all these like physical things to like be more macho or be Mm -hmm. more, um, you know, just be a tougher kid so I could protect by trying to the build myself guy. up. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that carried on like until, well, wow, pretty much until like that panic attack. I went through all through college being a bouncer at a bar, okay. you know, beating up people, being fearful of being beaten up, being embarrassed. Like it was, I was in this violent, aggressive world. Mm-hmm. A lot of things in between, you know, the 14 year old and 27 when, you know, the panic attack happens, but like you start to realize like, Oh, that's, you know, like this kind of makes sense. Like, no, I can't connect the dots perfectly, but I see the trends. Yeah. And then there's nothing more embarrassing or emasculating than like not being able to make money as a man. I'm not mm, able to produce. Men are, right. Men are the producers and the providers culturally. Terrible. So, so you, you, you're putting yourself in a stressful situation. You're not making money. I'm doing the only reason I'm doing this whole cold calling, running around in a suit, trying to collect business cards, trying to sell health insurance is to make money and hopefully to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's not happening. And it's just, it's that feeling of being 14 and being punched in the face and running away. Yeah. Just building, but I would hold it in and hold it in and hold it in. And I, I think it just kind of bubbled over. Made itself known in a very vivid way. And I don't think I've ever, honestly, I don't think I've ever talked about this like in this way. I never like went from 14 to that moment, but I've thought about it. I've just never actually verbalized it to anyone. So. I've been told often I just informally therapist people. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yeah. a qualified therapist, however. 
I'm not either. And yeah. I think the therapist in me recognizes the therapist in you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think so many people deal with stuff like this. I mean, I can only speak toward mostly men in that, I guess maybe it translates to some women, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. But for men, it's like being tough, not being weak. Yeah. You know, whether it comes to physical altercations, how aggressive you are. Then when you get older, it's making money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know. The car me- you drive, the, the yeah, title. The, yeah. the life you have, the house yeah. you have. Yeah. You know, trophy wives at 60 years old. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if it ever ends. You know, I think a man's always in this kind of world where women have, a woman's perspective on the same thing would be more of the nurturer. Yeah, you take be, care of everybody else. Like, take care of everybody. Not yourself, everybody else. Like, you, you don't put yourself on your own list. Yeah, so women are conditioned to be nurturing and caregiving to everyone but themselves. Right. And then many of us, as you and I have talked about, we were at a certain point in life where it's like, I can't do this anymore. Like there's a brick wall of burnout. And I think women and men hit the same wall. We just approach it from different pathways. Like I got to a point where I'm like, I'm done taking care of everybody else. I need to do what I need to do for myself first. Mm. And I've read other, like most, actually more women than men have panic attacks. Mm, I um, could see that. Statistically. And women's experience, mostly from what I've read, it's, the same trend. It's being the caregiver and just being overwhelmed by it, that you're trying to take care of too much. And it's just like this never ending. It's unsustainable. Unsustainable. And then that brings on this anxiety and then bam, panic attack. Like for me, it was like, I can't provide bam, panic attack. Like, yeah, I could see that. But it's kind of similar because they're both a sense of overwhelm that you can't accomplish what you think you're supposed to. Right. It's failing to live up to the cultural ideal. And then how does that reflect on you as a person? Like your worthiness as a human, like such crap that we feed our children. It's like, it is, it is. And in, and in so many ways, I thought my parents were good parents. So they did the best that that they could. That wasn't a good moment. (laughs) That wasn't a good moment on their part, in in my opinion. But yeah. But I mean, they they did a lot of other good things. But why did they do that? You know, sometimes I went down that rabbit hole for a while. Why were they that way? If they just didn't do that, if they just like encouraged me, if they just nurtured, then I wouldn't have been going through all this. I'm like, there's no point to that. You're never going to realize. I'm just going to suggest maybe they had their own messed up childhoods and life experiences. Oh, that's 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 a definite. You know, it's like let them off the hook. They did the best that they knew how to do, and yeah, yeah, that's all any of us can do. Right. About unreasonable expectations. Each generation gets a little bit better, right? <laughs> yeah. You abuse your kids or you're like, a little you know, bit a little less. less. Yeah. 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 A little less violent. <laughs> <laughs> the public violence is frowned upon now. <laughs> so tying all of this into some sort of finance related concepts, mm. very easy to relate these to. Panic attack. What do you do when, you know, things start crumbling around you financially? What's the knee jerk reaction? You know, that I use that term so much with clients because it's so vivid to most people, knee jerk. Yeah. yeah. So when I'm describing something to a client, I'll say, listen, I want to make sure you feel comfortable in what we do because I do not want you to have a knee jerk reaction when things go bad. And eventually mm-hmm. they will in a, for mm-hmm. a short period of time. And so I want to prevent that knee jerk reaction. And for whatever reason, that terminology is people are like, got it. I understand yeah. what you're saying. It's visual. 
Yeah, it's a visual. You're right. Like nobody wants to have a knee jerk reaction. It's almost yeah. it's negative too, right? Oh, yeah. Knee yeah. jerk. So those conversations, I would, man, that, I have to say it's the majority of what I talk about. The majority of what I talk about with clients is about not panicking when protecting them from themselves. Yes, and under, right, getting some sort of understanding and like forward thinking, you know, preventing them from assaulting themselves. Yeah, assaulting. Wow, Look at this that. Is, man, you are a good therapist. <laughs> <laughs> right, I can't right. stop. So it's. I'm trying to get them in their own head and just yeah, stop assaulting yourself. You're going to assault yourself in the future. <laughs> I just want right. to mitigate that. Well, it's like when you talk about the experience of panic attacks, that hyper, hyper, hyper focus and keep going narrower and narrower and narrower. Mm-hmm. And that what you have found, as we talked about, is that one of the lifelines that you can choose to grab onto is taking a deep breath and coming back to breathing and even just taking a half a step back, a half a step back to get a little bit more perspective than the hyper focus. Yeah. And knowing the triggers, right? So you knowing when it's coming. Although a panic attack, the first time it happens, usually is just completely out of, out of nowhere. As time progresses, you start to feel the sensations that are leading. You see the path you're going down and you can yes. kind of stop it at the pass. Mm-hmm. And you can do the same thing with you know any type of investing investments or like the psychology behind investing in investments. Once you start believing that things are so bad, because yeah. things are never quite as bad as you think and they're not as good as you think. It's like, there's always that middle road. It's usually a lot more moderate than we would yeah. believe. I think they say that about critique, you know, like the, your mm. critics, you're never as bad as you think, you're never as good as you, they tell you or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. Ne- you're never as bad as they say you are and you're never as good as they say you are, mm-hmm. supposedly. Um, so yeah, you start thinking, how am I going to... How am I going to help them help them get ahead of this? Because mm-hmm. this is coming. So yeah, just it's paint inevitable. It. And yeah. you're, pa- you're painting the picture. You know, this is going to happen. And when that day happens, I want you to remember this conversation. And it's funny. It's like I, I'll put notes in my system just to like document what I'm doing. Uh-huh. Just so I have like a track record of what I'm saying. And I'll go back to it sometimes with a client. I'll be like, you know, we had this conversation a year ago. At this day, at this time. Uh Yeah. (laughs) And now now the market's down 20%. I just want you to remember that conversation. Okay. Mm -hmm. It does help. I mean, it's little things. You never, once somebody goes down that rabbit hole so far and they're convinced, and like you said, their focus is so narrow, Mm -hmm. there's nothing that's going to break them. They're not going to be convinced otherwise. It's gone. They're going to hurt themselves. And there's a point at which you have to step back and just put your hands up and realize there's nothing more you can do. It's you a whole, can't save them all. You can't save anyone but yourself. Yeah, it's sad. I automatically thought that it only happens with people that just were less educated. It's mm-hmm. so not the case. No. Sometimes it's the opposite. The more educated you are, the more intellectual. You yeah. think you know because, like, now you think you're so smart. Right. And yeah, you're smart when it comes to analytics and mm-hmm. you know textbooks, but you're not smart when it comes to your emotions. Yeah. So now your emotions are driving everything in this and. You're just a slave to the emotion. That's a crazy train right there. Yeah. <laughs> crazy train. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. You could kind of like find the pattern from childhood to like 20s mm-hmm. to 30s to 40s to like now dealing with people in your career. And there's mm-hmm. like so many common threads and trends that you can see that you can piece together. You can see it weave how the sausage is made, I guess. You know? Well, it's, it's fascinating like how much we end up having in common as we navigate life experience, like we really do, even men and women, like 
the details differ, but the life experiences have a lot more in common than we would initially think. So much more. You could count them both as overwhelming, uh, like a lack of control over your life. Mm. Like when you brought to that point when you're a woman and you're a caretaker and you want to take care of everybody. Mm -hmm. And then the reality hits is that that's impossible. But your brain keeps telling you like, but I have to, that's who I am. I'm the caretaker. Mm -hmm. I take care of everybody. Mm -hmm. That's going to come to a breaking point at some point. And with a man, it works the same way. So with a man, it's just a different, it's just a different lane. They're going down this lane of, I have to provide for everybody. I have to be the producer. I have to be the the breadwinner, whatever you want to call it. You know, the, the tough, the alpha male that takes care of the finances and beats away yeah. like the, you know, the criminals and I need to just protect my family and provide for them. Mm. They're both so similar. They really are. Yeah. And the same neurosis like comes from both of them, <laughs> you know, so like when neither gender is immune to it. No. But you always think it's different. You always think that like it's, we're so polar opposite, you know? And that's not actually the case. And the more that we, and that's why I'm so passionate about this project as well, because I recently discovered this year that I really enjoy ghostwriting and writing with men. I'm like, who knew? But it makes so much sense. Like I do, I am very direct. And so men are a little generally more open to personalities like that. So I tend to work well with men. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Because I'm a lot, especially for Southern men. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, you had two pluses, direct and from New York. I mean, that's what I loved. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) willing to have conversations with depth. Well, I don't think men were ever allowed to speak like in these ways, you know, that again, I tell you, if my dad ever heard this conversation, he would be horrified. He would not be a fan. Well, he just, he honestly wouldn't understand it. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. think he, I think he would have turned off within the first 30 seconds. He would Mm -hmm. like, I don't know what you're even talking about. I'm going to get back to watching soccer. I don't know. Or whatever Mm -hmm. he did. So like, it's just his generation and even generations after his, like, you weren't allowed to talk about stuff like this. I even felt that way as a child. Like I grew up with a certain group of friends that didn't talk in this kind of touchy feely way. Contemplative. Contemplative, talk about emotions, talk about things that in our minds were only allowed to be talked about by women. And then I met another group of friends that were more contemplative and like, it was so freeing as a kid, as a male to be like, oh, I'm allowed to do this? Like, this is to what I'm feeling. To be able to, what, relax and just be who you are? What a concept. Yeah, and not have to put on this facade, this tough guy facade, and just talk about, you know, sports and just things that mean nothing to me. Competition, and yeah. Yeah, and fantasy football, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our take on Panic Attack. That was and a good one. That was a very personal one. It was, it was so important to me when after I had such a devastating feeling to know other people had it and have those other people explain it and then realize, oh, other people had this. Oh, and the, and the end, they've described it. Oh, I relate to those feelings. I had that same feeling. I'm mm-hmm. not crazy. Right. It's validating to receive someone else's story that has something that you personally experienced. Yeah. It really felt good to do that. So so that's, yeah, that's our panic attack section. Hopefully it interrelates to our finance section of why people do make wrong decisions at bad times. <laughs> uh, well, what do we got on next week? So we have episode seven next week. Next week is episode eight and it is oh, Tesla. Episode, right. So this was episode seven, episode eight, Tesla. That's a fun one. So I don't that have a Tesla. Tesla 
And I'm going to preface either. this. I'm going to do this like throughout the podcasts as a disclaimer. I do not recommend Tesla stock to anybody. So this podcast is about me talking about what I know about the car, what I know about the owner, Elon Musk, the CEO. That's it. I don't recommend the stock. I don't want to convince anybody to buy it or think this that it's for entertainment purposes only. <laughs> Please. I beg of you. But that'll be a fun one to talk about. Yeah. Well, I've read I've read his autobiography and I've just followed him over the last 10 years. I've got to put that book on my list to read too, because I would probably enjoy it. You would. Yeah. It was yeah, it was a definitely a fun one to read. Please follow us at FAConfessions.com. Subscribe. We will send you an email every time we put out a new blog post or podcast episode. Hit the like button. Share. What else? Share. Maybe write a little review if you like what we said. You know, you relate to something we're talking about. Leave us a message. But anyway, thanks, Diane. Thanks, Al. That was fun. We'll see you next week. <laughs>